Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Good morning. How are we doing? I am tired. <laughs> Sometimes I come up here and I'm like, I'd rather just take a nap. But this is why I get paid the big bucks. So got to be up here. Um, uh, Book of John, we're there. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, pull that out. <clears throat> John 6. Uh, before we get into it, today is a very special Sunday. Not for our church, although every, every Sunday hopefully is fun and special. Uh, but for a church Sister or aunt, depending on how you look at it, uh, Movement Church in Hilliard is celebrating their new building today. Uh, they, yes, yeah, so that's exciting. Uh, it looks pretty cool in there. I've been in there, and it's pretty sweet. Uh, you can tell they definitely went hard on the haze, which is exciting. So, uh, But um, if you're wondering why are we talking about some other church in Columbus, uh, we are not in a competition here. So we love other churches. Uh, and if you have been uh, just with us for a little bit, we just got out of the uh, stages of church plant, being a church plant. So we are fully self-sustaining in the process of trying to buy our own building. They're just north of here, moving in there in a few months, which we're really excited about. Um, but we were able to be planted because of Movement Church. About nine years ago, ten years ago maybe, they were planted. I think ten years ago this year, uh, they were a church plant. And Mark, our triple pastor, believes so much in church planting that he decided we're going to dedicate 5% of all of our giving to church planting with the goal of planting 50 churches in 50 years. It's always like a nice round number, isn't it? It's never like 51 churches in 42 years. It's always like, but 50 churches, 50 years, that's our goal. We are a part of that church planning network. So 10 years ago, Movement Church happened. Six years ago, Three Creeks Church happened in Gehanna with Joel Trainer. And then when I came on, I was a resident at both churches, which was a great Sunday morning, driving back and forth. Uh, and then we planted from them, and we are Contrast Church going on year three. And so we all have a deep love for each other, our community, the way that we follow Jesus in each context, because we believe that um, churches must be context to their area, which means every church should be hypothetically doing some strategy differently because of that. Uh, and so we are a part of that, and now we are helping, we are helping loosely plan a fourth church in Sunbury next year, mainly through Movement Church. They have a church planning resident. Uh, but in the next two to five years, our vision and goal as a church is to plan a church uh, as well. We already have $45,000 saved up to make that happen, which is pretty exciting. So who knows how much money we'll have in a couple years. Um, but if you are in this church for more than a few weeks, that is a part of who we are, and that is a part of the multiplication mindset that we have. One of the reasons why I respect Movement Church so much, specifically Mark, is because uh, you would think, wow, like it makes sense when you're a 1,000-person church and you send off 10 people who aren't involved and don't care or whatever. But Movement Church planted Three Creeks Church when they were 300 people, and they sent 50-some people to that church, all bought in, good leaders, and had to rebuild, you know. Um, and then Three Creeks Church sent 15 people. Movement Church sent 35 people to us a few years later. Uh, so we have been uh, ruined by generosity in that way. And uh, to be honest, our, we just love that philosophy. We believe in creating an orchard rather than one giant oak tree because everybody knows if that oak tree gets struck by lightning, it is no longer. <laughs> and so we just love the idea of creating an orchard of places for birds to gather. That's the metaphor. And so, yeah, so just encourage for them. I want to pray for them. We also gave them this cool, this cool little cart for their kids' ministry. 
Uh, I said, Mark, we love you guys. We have $500. What do you want? Uh, so this is what we got them. So uh, they have also given us over $100,000, so I felt it appropriate <laughs> to, to throw them a bone, you know? Uh, so Husky Cart it is. Uh, so you can feel proud that we loved and supported them. And when you go visit sometime, you can go check out the Husky Cart that we bought them. Um, <laughs> But I would love to pray for them, pray for our own heart for church planting. We are, uh, we are currently not yet a church planting church, but we want to be. And so that takes time and money and energy. And we'll send people that we don't want to leave, you know, and that's just a part of it. So I want us to start feeling that in our bones already before in a couple years I, I tell us that we're planting a church somewhere and we want some of you to go. So, Lord, thanks for moving church. Thanks for Mark and just the vision you've given him and, Lord, just the ability to be humble and to not hold things tightly as though we are in control, but to be open-handed. And Lord, the ways that you've shared the gospel uh, in Hilliard, in Gehanna, in Grandview, soon to be in Sunbury. Lord, all these places, we are just so grateful to be a part of that. Lord, we are grateful that you have um, given us uh, people who have who came on this church plant who are still considered to be on our launch team when we started, who have been here the whole time and have been able to see not only the terrifying risk that it is to move, to leave friends to um, inject yourself into a new community, but to see people come to know Jesus, and I think uh, even more deeply to follow you in a robust way. So we are just grateful for movement, the legacy they've given us. Would you, I would just pray for blessing in the community of Hilliard, uh, Lord, as they have this building as now a resource that is directly across the street from the high school. We just pray for ministry and, um, and families to come to know you in Hilliard and to be a light in that area as we continue to uh, just share your good news in all the places that we find ourselves. So we're grateful. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now we're in John 6. We are in a very popular passage in the Bible. I say it's popular because this story, the feeding of the 5,000, as Sarah read, is in all four gospel accounts. There's four stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and so this is one of the few that's in all four. John, as we've talked about, is a unique, creative poet guy. He's not as concerned with the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who write very similar stories. John just has kind of his own way of thinking. And so it's, it's important to know that even John includes this, and this is a really powerful story, and it's very memorable. Um, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've maybe just heard about this feeding of 5,000, bread and fish being multiplied. It's been a very common story. And so we're going to tackle that today. Fun fact, I did teach on this in Matthew about two and a half years ago. So I know that all of you remember exactly what I said, so you're just going to be super bored today. Um, <clears throat> that was a joke, so <laughs> you won't remember, because I didn't even remember. I had to look at my notes and be like, what did I say two and a half years ago? Uh, and so yeah, we're going to teach on it again today from John's point of view, and uh, what we're getting into is uh, Jesus just gathering probably the largest group of people that he will in his entire ministry. So in terms of like influence and success, this is the moment where he will gather the most people, and, uh, and it's close to 15,000. So let's get in here. Verse 1 through 3, let's get some context. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. There's several names for it. Um, a large crowd was following him because they were observing the miraculous signs he was performing on the sick. So Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down there in, in, with his disciples. So if you're curious, this is a good old map of Galilee here. I like this one because it's sort of like 3D, which is cool. It also has the terrain, which is, I think, helpful and important. Uh, fun fact, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, which doesn't really mean anything for our story today. But uh, I just thought it'd be cool, like, if the Mediterranean Sea, like, flooded, it would just go right into the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of wild. Uh, but if you look, 
most of the cities are surrounded by the lake because the lake was a, I call it lake because it really is a lake, it's not a sea, but it's basically a lake. Uh, it was a high commerce for fishing and for agriculture, get water for farms, things like that. So everybody was kind of surrounded around the sea. Jesus, is, most of his ministry is in the area of Capernaum, which is the north part of the lake, and then a lot of his ministry just kind of like goes back and forth. Uh, you could see from one side to the other on most clear days, but on cloudy days you couldn't. So that's how big we're thinking here. Uh, you're not like able to see your friend across the other side, but you were able to see, for the most part, across it. Uh, and so the, the common assumption of uh, where the feeding of the 5,000 was is just north of Gergesa there. It'd be where that point is in between those two mountains, and uh, mainly because of just kind of the, the geography. And then the next week, Adam, uh, my brother-in-law, is going to teach us on the stilling of the water when they cross and there's a storm. And they will end up in uh, Genesaret, so that's why most scholars assume that it was on the other side where we are today. He also uh, later will ask a disciple who's from Bethsaida where to find your nearest baker. So it's pretty uh, safe to bet that it's on that side of the sea. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Jesus is taking a boat across the sea, and people are literally following him around the sea, which is kind of funny to me. Uh, you know, he takes off, and they're like, where's he going? They're like, I don't know, probably the other side. Let's just all walk around the other side. Now, what's really important to notice is that all these cities are not very big. Uh, Capernaum would be one of the bigger ones in all those cities along the lake, and it would be anywhere from 20 to 50,000 people. We're talking about close to 15,000 people following, walking, waiting for Jesus on the other side of the lake. That's a lot of people in, in these small, I mean, these gutting these small towns for the most part, and, uh, and they're all just like following along the sea here. And so it creates this really unique scene the, uh, the other detail we see in verse 4, it's in parentheses, uh, John includes that now the Jewish feast of the Passover was near. And so I mentioned this last week, John is very concerned with not only symbols, uh, which he writes his entire book based on seven signs or miraculous things we see, and then seven teachings or discourses. And he does that because the number seven means perfect, mature, complete. And so he does that. Uh, and, and then in all of that, he also includes the Jewish festivals and things like that. And so if you were Jewish, you had mainly four festivals a year that you had to go to. And so he, uh, this is a pulled from the Bible Project. It's a kind of diorama, not diorama, like drawing about the book. And so these are the four festivals that Jesus, or that, that John keys in on and how Jesus is meeting these feasts and what he provides in the midst of them. Lastly, we talked about the Sabbath, which was during the Feast of the Trumpets and uh, how that caused a lot of controversy. And then this week specifically in chapter 6, it says, for it is about to be the Passover. Now, that would just feel like a pointless detail if, it, if we didn't know anything about it. But um, what he's basically saying is that the Passover is near. All these people are preparing for it. And what, what I would argue is happening in this passage is Jesus is showing them that I am the real Passover. I am the fulfillment of what is to come, which I will explain later. Um, but that's where we find ourselves. And then in the next few weeks, we'll cover the Feast of Tabernacles and then Hanukkah, or, which is the rededication of the temple. So... I know that's a lot of information, but it's helpful to understand the context of what's going on here. So if this is your first week and you were like, I didn't even know we were 10 weeks into John, hopefully you still can feel like you're, you know what's going on here. Um, so let's get into the story, verse 5. Then Jesus, when he looked up and saw a huge crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, where can we buy bread so that these people may eat? Now Jesus said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. And Philip replied, 200 silver coins worth of bread would not even be enough for them, for each one to get a little. And so one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good are these for so many people? <clears throat> now, Jesus looking up and seeing the people, I'm stealing from the Matthew's account, but 
uh, before this, the disciples had just been sent out in twos to go to the houses of Israel, the Jewish people, and try to preach the good news. Repent, the kingdom of, of God is near, Jesus is here. And they did miraculous signs. They saw people come to believe. It was this really cool, exhausting, tiring journey. They all come back. Jesus puts them all together. They share stories. They're exhausted. And then they find out that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had just been beheaded. And so they're sad, and they're mourning and lamenting that. Jesus is probably sad because he's human. And so they try to get away from the people. So they, they travel across the Sea of Galilee to where they end up now, only to get there, and there would be 15,000 people waiting for you. Uh, so it's just a very tense, exhausting season for these disciples and for Jesus. Um, you know, think about when you're, like, most tired, and then you've got to go up and give a presentation to 15,000 people who are all going to critique everything you say. That's exhausting, to say the least. And that's what they do. They, Jesus meets these people where they're at. There are times where he's very careful about his boundaries in terms of his energy and his time and his prayer and all that. But in this moment, he has, in Matthew, it says, compassion, splank mazia, which is like this deep gut feeling for people that he just is like, I got to care for these people, lost without uh, a shepherd. So he starts teaching, and before we know it, they're all hungry, believe it or not. They've wandered out into this like little grass wasteland near the mountains of the side of the sea, and they're all very hungry. And uh, he's like, we got to eat. So he asks Philip, poor Philip. Philip is from Bethsaida. So he's like in this area. And Jesus is like, hey, do you know of a good baker around here that could feed 15,000 people? And, you know, poor Philip is just like, no, I don't. <laughs> My hometown has like 500 people. And the baker has like makes 30 loaves a day, you know. So no. And even then he's like 200 denarii, which a denarii was what you typically got paid one day, every day was a denarii. So Eight months of your salary would be what it would cost to feed just all these people one time. Imagine you bowling eight months of your salary on one dinner. It's just not possible. It's almost foolish. And obviously, it says Jesus did it to test Philip. Poor Philip, like I said, he's just part of the case study here. But um, he is like, hey, we, there's no way. And I, I think sometimes we forget just pure logistics, what we're talking about right now. Okay? I went to a passion conference when it first was started when I was in college. Uh, and it was we met at the uh, Atlanta Falcons stadium, 50,000 young adults. It was like the mass, the biggest gathering in the, in the U.S. for young adult conference, Christian conference. And the, the most fascinating thing, there was a great conference, but what I took away, there was this moment where they fed all of us, every single one of us at the same time. 50,000 boxed lunches were just like handed through each, I mean, it was like a well-oiled machine. And I'm like, who put 50,000 bags of chips in 50,000 boxes? Like, imagine how many people that would take and then the sandwich, you're like, who knows how long this has been sitting, you know? But I'm just, like, so impressed. I'm like, I don't know if Subway did this or who did it, but props to them. It took days, weeks, supply chain, all this stuff, right, to feed 50,000 people one time. And it took a very long time, even though they had piles of boxes in each section of the stadium, and you follow your section in line, you grab your box, and you go sit down. It still took a really long time. It was this huge thing, hundreds of volunteers, this is, this is, I mean, even harder. It's less people, but it's just they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's 12 disciples, 12 helpers, and these people are hungry, and it's just ridiculous to think about it, uh, that this, this could happen. Even just logistically, let's say they did have just wagons full of fish and bread for 12 people to feed approximately 1,200 to 1,300 people each. On a busy night at a restaurant, you do like five tables at a time, you know? Maybe that whole night you serve like 60, not even that, probably like 30 tables, right? 
these people are literally handing out to groups of 50 and 100, like just for over an hour, maybe two hours, just handing people food. So there's this logistical, just like, wow, this is ridiculous. And it all starts with just a really terrible, dumb idea. Andrew's like, hey, I have this little boy. He's got a lunch. What do you think? What should we do? And I, if I was Andrew, I'd be like, here you go, Jesus. Like, you get a sardine, I get a sardine. Don't tell anyone else, you know? And they are sardines. They are not fish. They are like tiny fish, minnows, uh, and then really small, crappy bread, like little like, bun, like buns of bread. And uh, it's just a joke. Like, Andrew, come on, dude. He's probably like trying to be like, I'm going to be creative, you know? And Philip's like, I am already sad that our baker can't handle this, you know? And, and then Andrew's like, here you go. And they're all like, I don't know. This is a stupid idea. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like your, um, your house, like you hit a water line and your house is just flooding. And you're like, go get something. And like someone runs and then they give you like a shot glass. And they're like, here you go. <laughs> and you're like, that's not going to do it. <laughs> and you're almost mad at them. You're like, you're an, why did you waste your time? And the, the, the house, meanwhile, is just still flooding. And you have this shot glass. And it's just like, it's just stupid. Oh, man, that, that Andrew thought this was a good idea. And we don't know, like, who knows? Maybe he was acting in complete faith. I think it was more of, like, they went around, and they're like, this is all we can find, you know? And um, this poor little boy gets his lunch stolen, right? No one, no one ever talks about the faith of the little boy who, like, give us your lunch. Like, they're literally, like, bullies. <laughs> or, like, trust me, this will feed thousands. Like, okay. No grown man is going to be like, I believe that. Here you go. No, this little boy is like, okay, whatever. You're bigger than me, so take it. And so they take this little boy's lunch. And, man, what an opportunity we have to see Jesus do something remarkable. And it's just hard to fathom. Um, if you watch The Chosen, Chosen is like a, a TV show that does, tries to replicate really the story of John, actually, in the life of Jesus. It's really cool um, show And one of the last episodes I think they're caught up to is the feeding of the 5,000. We actually had some friends that were able to be extras in that because they needed like 5,000 people. So that was pretty cool. But seeing it um, is remarkable because it's just so many people. And I was so curious in my mind of like, how are they going to make this miracle happen on TV? Like, how are they going to like display it? Was it like they gave everybody a little piece of bread and they just kept breaking it and it just kept like growing back? Or was it like, uh, you know, they, they, like, put it in this basket, and then all of a sudden, like, it's just full. And that's kind of where they went. They, he, like, broke each piece and put it in these 12 baskets, and then they, like, when they go to hand it out, there's, like, it's full, right? But regardless of how it happened, like, the logistics of the physicality of it all and all that, there's still this reality that you as a disciple see this little boy's lunch. Jesus takes it, breaks it. Thank you, Father, for this. Now go feed everyone. And you're like, What? You know, they're like, thanks for the half of the sardine in this basket. And so they start going, and they were sat down in 50s to 100s. And by the way, when I say 15,000 people, 5,000 men, so they would probably approximate 10 to 15,000 people. They sit down in groups of 50 to 100, and you, just the 12 of you, just go out like, you know, servers, and you start handing people food, okay? Now, after the first person, you are like, what in the world is going on? How do I have more food than this one little shred, Right? But then imagine doing this for over two hours. You start to probably just laugh, like this is ridiculous. I would argue that probably 90% in, you're not wondering, hmm, I wonder if we're going to run out, which at the end they have tons left over, right? More than enough. And I think that this is such a true um, allegory for just obedient faith is that we have these small amounts 
of uh, resources, of talent, of gifting, of time, of money, of whatever it is. And God's like, I'll use that if you trust me. And I don't even know if the disciples trusted him. I think they were probably just doing what they were told. But in the midst of that, you start to grow this sense of expected obedience. And I would argue that most people that place themselves in that space will see this more than anyone else. The people who get to see God do crazy things are the people who are placing themselves in the situations and the conviction of the Spirit that will do those things. And so for many of us, there's these moments in our lives, and maybe they're like a very crazy human resource moment where it's like, there's just not enough, or I don't have the money, or whatever. But we get these small moments where the Spirit is calling us into something like this to take this risk to trust Jesus. And when we don't follow through on that, we just miss out on the opportunity to see God in really, really tangible, powerful ways. I mean, I've seen this. I've shared this before. I mean, I've seen this dozens of times in my life with money where, like, Sarah and I have, like, feel like she, more, more her than me. I'm more the budget guy. She's more the generous person. It's like, we need to give money to this thing. And I'm like, no, we don't have money. And she's like, let's do it. And so we do it. And then I'm, like, stressed. And then a check randomly comes in the mail for two grand. And you're like, I feel dumb, you know. Um, and that has happened so many times that I, don't, I can't even keep track of how many times something like that has happened. Now, do we give money away so we get a check in the mail? No. Does it always happen? No. But... You place yourself in these spaces where the only thing that you can see is if this moves forward, it's an act of, it's an act of God. And he, take, he took what little I had. I trusted in it. I moved forward and look at what we're doing. And at some point when these disciples are handing out this food, after a while, it just seems foolish to doubt anymore, right? Because you've just been inundated in this, this, the provision of God and you are getting to experience and be a part of people coming to realize that, my gosh, they have a lot of food here. I don't know where they got all this food. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing. But, but the moment, the crux of this story is do we, do we actually, are we actually obedient and do we go pass out food? Now, I, I would argue the disciples, I think they probably didn't really have a choice. Like, they're here, tons of people, and they just kind of listen to their rabbi, even if it's reluctant. But we have this moment where God calls us into something that whether we don't have the human resources, the talent, the confidence, whatever, and we're not sure... It, it, it rests on our understanding and our trust in who God is. I think about uh, a, a band that I really like. Uh, is a band uh, called Gable Price and Friends. They, they do like worshipy sort of theological music is the best way to describe it. Uh, and they have an album they made called Boxes Humans Made. And uh, the whole idea is that we, we take what we believe of God and because we're post-enlightenment, postmodern American people, we like create this theological box for God to fit in and it's nice and neat and comfortable and like we make sure he doesn't spill over the sides and then just to be extra careful, then we go find everyone else that has the same box so that we all like, look at us, we all have the same box, this is crazy. God must be exactly this box, right? And then what happens though is there's this moment where God is like, I don't want to be in the box anymore and you fight it or you get a bigger box, you're like, okay, fine, I'll be in a little bit bigger box, Right? But it's this whole just placing God where we want him to be without letting him be who he wants to be. And they have this song uh, in the album. It's called Heretic, and it's profound. The lyrics, it's talking about Jesus. It says, you are the empire, the promised land beneath my feet, the contrast that offends my firm theology. We've tried to fit your ways in the boxes that humans made. So either you're a heretic or you're the son of God. And, and that's what we do. We create these boundaries, and either God is what I want him to be or he's not. And if he's not, I get very nervous. I get very anxious. I start to doubt, all because I've created systems. I've created closed-handed theology where 
man, there's no possible way that guy would do anything or could do this or wanted this. And I, everyone there except Jesus is like, no way, right? And there's just no way that this is going to feed everyone. And Jesus is like, hey, just, just listen and be obedient. And so person by person, Jesus says, have the people sit down. And it says, no, there was a lot of grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed the bread to those who were seated. And he did so, the same with the fish, as much as they wanted One scholar just said, when Jesus is in charge of a situation, available human resources are irrelevant. Isn't that so true? So he takes the bread, he he distributes it, and then it gets to this point where people start realizing something's going on here. We don't have like a little hidden bakery in this carriage behind them, you know? And it says in verse uh, 12, when they were all satisfied, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the broken pieces that are left over so nothing is wasted. And so they gathered them up. They filled 12 baskets with broken pieces from the five barley loaves left over by the people who had eaten. These people don't just have a meal. They have all that they want, as much as they can have, so they are all fully satisfied. And then there's some more. There's a little bit extra, right? God's like, not only I got enough, I got a little more than you even need, right? I have abundance. And the 12 baskets is arguably always symbolic for the 12 tribes of Israel, just basically proving symbolically that Jesus is the meal for the entire people of Israel, that he can provide. Because later they'll feed the 4,000, that's the Gentiles, it's kind of a different story. Um, but Jesus is saying, I can provide sustenance for you, the people of Israel, that have been waiting for this Messiah. And there's a lot of different, you know, beautiful analogies in this, and some are a little bit forced, and others maybe uh, could make some sense. But food, typically in the Old Testament, was relative towards blessing, and um, provision, and if you didn't have food, it was a sense of, like, cursing. Now, at the end of the day, everybody has to eat. So it's like, it seems a little simple to just be like, oh, I'm blessed, I have food. I, don't, I think there's more to it than that. But Jesus is providing a physical reality. He is providing them with a, a nutrition, right, um, of hunger that is temporary, but is still substantial. Like, we have to go home and eat today, or you can only fast for so long. We're humans that need sustenance. But what Jesus is actually doing, and we'll talk about it in two weeks, is he's setting up uh, his, his next discourse or teaching, which is about him being the bread of life. And so he's saying, hey, I fed your physical bellies. Now let me talk to you about your spiritual bellies that need everlasting uh, fulfilling and feeding in bread that I have. Uh, and that's where he really raises the stakes. But it's important to know that even here, Jesus is meeting people in a very physical, tangible, honestly, not that big of a deal need. Like, they could have just been like, hey, guys, we're done here. Go figure out food, which would have been a nightmare. I mean, imagine 15,000 people going to like these small few towns and being like, hey, we're all hungry. And then be like, uh, you know, it would have been a nightmare anyways, right, to go do that. But he just makes this massive miracle over something that just feels like it's, it lasts a few hours. It's not that big of a deal in terms of the light of their lives. Um, but it causes them to realize, wow. In verse 14, now when the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus performed, they began to say to one another, this is certainly the prophet who has come into the world. And then Jesus, because he knew that they were going to come and seize him by force to make him king, withdrew again up the mountainside alone. These people are like, this is amazing. This guy, let's make him king. Like, we're going to take over Rome. If he can turn, like, all this bread into more bread, imagine what he can do with weapons, you know? We're going to have so many weapons. It's going to be great. You know, like everybody's just thinking in their own agenda of what God can do for them in a very political and nationalistic way. And they're just trying to make this guy king. Now, the phrase they have is really important. It says, the prophet to come. And what they're quoting, what they have known from Moses, the great prophet of the Jewish people, 
in Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, a fellow Israelite, and you must listen to him. And so these people have been waiting for this prophet to be able to conquer whoever at the time was their adversaries. In this case, Rome is pretty much the people that are controlling them. And what does Jesus do in the height of his influence? He makes a YouTube video and just maximizes views, right? An SEO optimization, right? Absolutely. Have you seen it? It's crazy. No, he doesn't. He literally runs away. And, I mean, part of that is because he just, his cousin just got killed, and so he's still, like, dealing with all this grief and mourning, right? But in the height of, of influence, he, he literally runs away from it. So if we just pause here, first two-thirds, four, three-fifths of the story is us trusting in the sustenance of, of God, right, in the midst of things that seem ridiculous. This little part, I think, is indicative of a lot of us in areas of influence and leadership and wealth and power is, like, what do we do when those things start to happen, when we get the promotion, when nicer house, bigger pay raise, our marriage is going really well? We start to, like, do we take credit? Do we start to maximize our influence for the sake of ourselves? I think about it this way. The number one question I'd ask myself is, do I go to God most in my hardship, in my failures, or in my successes? It's very easy when we're struggling to be like, wow, I am hopeless. My willpower has not gotten me through this. Lord, help me, right? I am broken. Very hard to do that when everything's going great. You start to believe, man, I actually am pretty great. Like, these therapists are finally working, right? And I look at me go, and people like me, and I make some money, and I got a nice car, and I got cool shoes. And, like, you know, you start to think, God, maybe help, but, like, I did this. Or at the beginning, you're like, praise God, praise God, praise God. And it's very, like, superficial, right? It's like every, every Academy Award winner ever. I just want to thank God. I want to thank my family. You're like, I don't want to thank God. You did not have God in any of this. I love you and I love acting, but like, you're, not, you're just saying that because everybody wants you to say that and expects you to say that. And so even sometimes we superficially act like we're giving God the glory, but then our actions prove in no other way that that's true. That'd be like Jesus just standing there and be like, no, no, don't do it. And, like, and then he's the king. You know, It's like, okay, well, you're the king, so you fell, whatever, right? No, he's like, no, I'm, I'm out. And the people are, I think, mad. I mean, they, it's just so funny, though. Like, the people literally just want a handout. Um, if you study the past chapter, this chapter, the next chapter, all together, basically what you have are just scavengers, people who are desperate to just get Jesus' stuff, healings, food, whatever. And then in two, in two weeks, we're going to talk about how many of them walk away when he calls them to deeper discipleship. He's like, okay, I gave you bread, but now let's talk about your spiritual state. And all of them are like, this is crazy, I don't want it. And they walk, tons of them leave. He goes from the height of a megachurch to all these people leave because the calling that he places upon them is not for everyone because it's radical, because it's hard, and because it requires humility. Our core, uh, my core group this week was reading Daniel, and uh, there was a part that I loved that I talked about. Um, Daniel is a, he's a dream. Um, he, he explains a lot of dreams to King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. These, they're in Babylon in exile. Daniel's still trying to follow Yahweh, the one true God, and he's struggling uh, with just the, the like Babylon Empire, but he's so faithful to God. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in chapter four. You can't interpret the dream is not good. It is basically like Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to get your kingdom taken from you. You're going to be eating grass like an animal, which is a wild, wild take. And uh, and Daniel explains that to him. He, he gives him the dream, and Daniel says in verse 27, "Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing what is right, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor." 
perhaps your prosperity will be prolonged. The next verse then says, now all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, and after 12 months, he happened to be walking around on the battlements of the royal palace of Babylon. The king uttered these words, is it not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal residence by my own mighty strength and for my majestic honor? While these words were still on the king's lips, a voice came down from heaven. It is hereby announced to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom has been removed from you. I just, it's just like, this story is so funny to me because it's like, it took 12 months. I'm like, that's pretty good. But what, what I think it's showing that's indicative of our heart is we are, always, we are always like forming towards this prideful, sinful self. And then one moment we can be completely humble, but we start to believe little lies about how great we are. We start to see all the things that we've accomplished, and we start to believe this to the point where then we become a Nebuchadnezzar who's like, look at the stuff that I did. And Jesus is so strict in having none of that with his ministry. And I just think we have so much to learn from that as followers of Jesus, as careers, as family, as our possessions. Do we place these things as importance in our lives in such a way that it creates this idea that we are God, that we are in control, and that we are impressive? And what's funny at the end of this, and and R.F. Bailey, he's a scholar, points out the irony in this, that the very thing the people wanted, they did not get, but they didn't even get that they wouldn't, take the thing they needed. And he says this, he says, he who is already king, which is Jesus, has come to open up his kingdom to people. But in their blindness, they try to force him to be the kind of king they want. And by doing that, they fail to get the king they want and also lose the kingdom that he offers. They are the problem in the equation, wanting Jesus to be a certain thing, not fitting the mold in the boxes that they've made. And then they, they don't have the ability to reconcile what Jesus is actually calling them to. The biggest problem in the midst of them is themselves. So, you know, if you were to ask, what is this sign for? Who is it for? Is it for the disciples? Is it for the people's stomachs? Is it for the people's spiritual stomachs? I would say yes. I think the disciples have a lot to learn here in what I would call expecting obedience, continuing to follow the ways and walking behind their rabbi, trusting that what he has for them is something that he can provide for and do something with. But then these people are, are able to see the tangible way that God meets them where they are in their hunger in a small, mundane, fish and loaf situation, but also eventually going to call them into a radical spiritual discipleship for eternity. And so that leads us into this time of uh, formation here. I want to invite Nadia up that we re- reflect on. There's a couple different components of this. The first one, I think, and most just simply, is are we willfully trusting in Jesus? Do we live in such a way that we're expecting about what he can do in our lives? Are we obedient to his call in our life, even when it seems like human resources or even just the reality we live in is not possible or exhausted? Do we have an expectant posture towards God revealing himself and listening to that? I think about the prayer room, you know, we spent 180 hours over the last 10 days in that prayer room in the back, which is just phenomenal um, and amazing. And that whole wall is just full of expectancy, right? It's just like, Lord, we want this. Lord, we, we love this. Lord, would you do this? It's a continual expectant. Now, we're not going in there being like it's some sort of magic genie, and you walk out, and you're like, wow, I got it. But I was praying there a couple days ago, and there was another money thing, and uh, literally just silly. My wife wanted to go. The situation's not silly, but it feels silly to me now. But my wife wanted to go see her friend who was adopting uh, a kid into their family in Texas. She's like, hey, the adoption's in four days. And if you know anything about flying, it's a great time to buy flights four days before they leave. Um, and it's not a good time. And, um, and I'm like, it's like $500, you know? I'm just like, ah, oh, this isn't gonna work. There's nowhere in the budget for that. 
And, uh, and I go to the prayer room, and God's like, hey, you need, to, you need to let her go. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't like that. And then I'm there for an hour, so he said it a bunch of times. And I was like, should I just leave? Should I just ignore you? So I go home begrudgingly, and I'm thinking of a way that I could reveal this to her in a very, like, look how awesome of a husband I am. Like, hey, I decided I want to let you go. I think that's, I just want you to know I'm just serving you here. How great are we, right? Uh, if we get in debt, who cares, you know? And, uh, and at the same time, before I had told her, I'm sitting there, and her friend calls her, and her other friend in Texas, different friend, and she's like, hey, I just want you to know the Lord put on my heart. I want to give you $300 to go on this trip. And I'm sitting there like, wow, okay, great. Now I have to, like, I have to tell her, right? And so then I tell her, and then she's still on the phone, and she's like, yeah, it's so weird. I was like, like literally, basically the same time I was praying in the prayer, and she's like, God just told me I needed to do this. And, and it's just like these silly things, right? It says it sounds silly because at the end of the day, it's like 300 bucks, which sure, could be a lot of money in that moment, and it was going to make, make or break a decision that we were going to have. I kid you not, and I'm not even lying, I have had that happen three dozen times in the last three years, things like that where you're just like, after a while, it's like a drug in that you just trust the Lord is providing in all areas of your life, money, people, relationships. There's been times where I've been prayerful about a conversation I was nervous about, and I was like, this is not going to go well. This person is not going to hear in humility anything I have to say or we're going to talk about. And then you go there, and it's like absolute best case scenario. You just can't even believe it. You're like, there's no way. Like God was preparing their hearts for days to have this conversation or whatever, right? It happens in so many areas of our lives, but if we're not attuned to the Spirit, we're not trusting in expecting obedience, we're not walking in the lifestyle and the ways of Jesus and his teaching, we don't get to see these things because we're still cultivating a life that we are God and we are in control. And so I think the feeding of the 5,000, cool, right? But none of us are like, man, I really need a meal today. You can go to McDonald's for three bucks. Not anymore, inflation in this economy. But you go to McDonald's for $7 and you get a meal and you're fine. But how many of us would we relate to us all being tired of mental health issues or people in depression or people with anxiety or people that are struggling and we go to this mountain and this guy's like, I can, I can cure all of that. You'd be like, what is it? Is it medicine? Is it therapy? Is it a book? I will do it. I'll sign up. Without doing like, the deep-seated work in our identity that he's calling us to in two weeks as the bread of life. And I just think that Jesus is here to meet us even in the small things and they will lead to this deep sense of just trust expectancy. So I just encourage you in the time of formation to reflect on that. I think that there's a reality for many of us that there are lots of areas that we are willfully trusting Jesus in, but there are small closets and rooms in our house that we are not allowing God into for whatever reason. And the Spirit is just persistently, lovingly knocking, saying, are you going to let me in now? And we just have to be willing to open the door. And so I want you just to reflect on that. As we enter into a time of formation, we have four things we do every Sunday that help you become formed into the image of Christ. First one is prayer. People in the back, we'd love to pray for you. They keep it anonymous. They'd love to pray for you uh, and just encourage you in whatever you're needing prayer for. Second thing is the bread in the cup, which we offer every Sunday. It is gluten-free bread and grape juice in the front and in the back. And that is a reminder that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is the bread that sustains us for eternity each day as we were broken sinners needing his grace and his salvation. And so if you believe that, you can partake in that at any point on your own. Uh, we also have a giving box in the back. We call it a bringing box because we believe that nothing is ours and that anything we're giving is a bringing back of what is already God's for worship and obedience and faith. And then lastly, just to reflect on these questions, we're going to give you a few minutes. we got one more song, but we'll give you space to reflect. And I promise you, when you sit in this moment with the Spirit, that the Spirit is one who convicts, one who prods, lovingly encourages, and speaks truth in our life. 
And so would you open yourself up to the possibility that there is something that you are willfully uh, avoiding, are disobedient, are not trusting, and would place that before the Lord and maybe others to pray for you. So we'll give you some time and then we'll conclude in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.